All right, good morning. Good morning, good morning. Um, so that I don't get a thousand questions between services, my glasses broke, which is why I don't have them on, but I'm, I'm wearing contacts. And so anyways, uh, I, people sometimes don't recognize me. Um, I actually saw a number of you this week, and I went up to you, and I said, hey, <clears throat> you looked at me like, who are you? And anyways, it's me. Hi. Good to see you guys. My name is Michael. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church. Um, one time many years ago, actually, my contacts broke and I shaved my head for the first time all on the same Sunday and I got up to preach. And there were like a handful of people who for like five minutes were like, who is this imposter? We don't know him. But it is, it is me. I am here with you. Open up your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 5. And we are finishing the book of 1 Peter today. And uh, I'm just really excited to open this text for you. It did a lot of work in my heart this, this week. So uh, to close, Peter is going uh, right to the church leadership. He has some pretty direct words for the elders or the pastors, the, the church leaders. Um, and then what he's going to do is he's going to address um, that team first. And then what he's going to do is he's going to talk to everybody all at once. And so he's going to take some time and just address the elders. So let me just start by saying this. Um, I have found personally uh, that leadership is a delight. Uh, leadership at Village Church has been an absolute privilege. It has been a joy. Don't get me wrong. It has been gut-wrenching on many, many levels. But big picture, you look back and being a leader and elder here has been a sheer Delight. Uh, when I sit down with many buddies around the country and the world, uh, many of them hate being pastors in their church because they cannot get along with their elders. They cannot get along with their church. And so leadership for many pastors is actually an incredible burden. Uh, it's an incredible frustration, and that's a really sad, unnecessary reality. And, and so whatever is said about elders, to elders, by elders, et cetera, this morning in the front half of the sermon, I just want to look at you and say on a personal level, what I'm saying right now is um, I just find leadership to be uh, an excruciating delight. <laughs> uh, Keyword delight. Now, <clears throat> for church elder teams, there are regular and ongoing pressures. Every leadership team, I don't care if you're a business owner, there are unique leadership pressures for every job. It doesn't matter where you're at, and elder teams have a unique uh, set of pressures on them. And I think it's really healthy for you to understand some of the pressures that regularly elder teams deal with. So uh, Pastor Craig and I and Pastor Alex at Alliance Bible Church, we made a rough list of about 800 of them. We whittled it down to 12 for your sake, and so I'll read some of these to you. The pressure to acquiesce to the newest theological and social fads. The pressure to take the middle ground to not upset too many people. The pressure to grow. The pressure to stay small. The pressure to appease generational desires with regard to hiring and style and ministries. The pressure to be liked. Anybody else have that pressure? The pressure to go into crazy debt to build an empire, the pressure to preach or not preach on specific topics, the pressure to not let hurt people down, the pressure to defend, the pressure to attack, the pressure to say it just the right way. And this isn't like a village church thing. This is like an all elders everywhere kind of pressure. Like there's a lot of voices that want to influence the trajectory, the direction, the thoughts, and the ideas. And a group of elders has to figure these things out and sift through them and sort, sort them out. And again, it's like this in any, 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 any industry where you lead. But these are some of the unique ones that come to elders. I'm going to put this on the screen so you can see it. When we're talking about pressure, repeated and enduring pressure weakens our defenses over time. And then... Over time, it exposes our true character, sometimes for better, right? Sometimes you watch people go through hell and back, and you're like, 
I respect them, but sometimes for worse. So one of the um, just privileges that I, I personally have is I'm very good friends or at least acquaintances with the vast majority of pastors in our area. And over the last 17 years that I have been a pastor at Village Church, I have watched one after another, after another, after another elder team acquiesce to the pressure and the church close or go through crisis. It has been gut-wrenching to watch. Right now, I'm navigating three separate um, uh, relationships with pastors that are very tense in their uh, uh, circumstances. And just watching the pressure on these men to acquiesce is unbelievable. What I know is this in 10 years, if you were just like fast forward in time, uh, take the Village Church of Bartlett and just go like 20 minute radius in every direction, the church landscape is going to be incredibly, incredibly different than it is today. Why? Because the pressures are unending and some elder boards are proving themselves to not have what it takes to toe the line with doctrinal clarity and a few other specific things to make wise decisions in light of these things. Now, here's, here's the challenge. I don't care who you are. Just because a team has done semi-decent up-to-date doesn't mean for the next 10 years they will. And so elders need to be constantly reminded and encouraged and trained and talked to. And so Peter is not for a moment going to stop. He's going to go right to the leaders because as go the leaders, so goes the local church. Like if you want village church, do you love this church? If you do, okay, as go this small group of leaders, so goes the entire local church. That's how important it is. That's how important it is that if we put up a man to be an elder that isn't qualified, it is of utmost importance for you to speak up. Because as go this team, so goes the vibrancy, the health, the longevity, the survival inevitably of that church. It's a big deal. It's a huge deal. So he's going to take a moment. He's going to talk to them. And look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. Again, the first half, we're going to talk to elders, and then we're going to break it up and talk to everybody. Uh, and we're going to follow Peter's flow here. He says, so... In light of First Peter chapters one through four, I exhort the elders among you. I exhort the elders among you. Now, why is he going to give so much real estate in this precious book to this group of men? As we said, as go the elders, so goes the local church. Now, I want you to go down to verse 13 with me, and I want to set some context. I want to show you uniquely why these churches that Peter is writing to are uniquely under an amazing amount of pressure, something no elder team in this area is dealing with. This level of pressure that this group of churches in first century Turkey is dealing with is unlike anything I've ever experienced. Uh, we, if we could get a, a, in contact with some of these elder teams and go back in time and chart them 2,000 years into the future, I would have them get up and I would have them exhort our elders because we have a lot to learn from people who go through this kind of pressure. Verse 13 says, Peter's writing, and he says, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Now, pop quiz. Is the city of Babylon at the time of this writing even a city? The answer is no. Say no. One, two, three. No, you're like historically so smart. I just love it, right? So Babylon in scripture has three big meanings. Here's the first one. Babylon was a literal city with multiple iterations. And it began shortly after the flood by a man named Nimrod. He was the first world leader, the first kingdom builder. His first large-scale venture was Babel, which literally is the same exact word for Babylon. They are one and the same. Very much like the city of Chicago. If you went back into the city of Chicago in the 1800s, it would look incredibly different, right? 
same city, but over time, it takes multiple iterations. Now, uh, eventually, it would grow, number two, to be a global empire and superpower in the 7th and 6th century BC. For a brief period of time, Babylon became the global dominant world power. But inevitably, it was crushed. And after its fall, Babylon became a negative spiritual symbol for God's people. It became a metaphor. It became an archetype. It became a representative. It became a a nickname. And let me just put it on the screen so you can see it. Babylon symbolized humanity's unified ambition to dethrone God and to declare independence from him. And so here's what Peter sees. He is living in Rome under Nero, and the spirit of Babylon is in them. And they are raising up to persecute believers, followers, and Jesus Christ. And so as Peter writes to them, here's what he's saying. Listen, I know you guys have it hard, but we are in the middle of Babylon over here. You got out. Yeah, you lost everything in the process. Yes, you have been exiled. Yes, you've been forced into a different country, into a different land. And yes, you're being forced to merge with a bunch of Christians who are just very different than these elders. And he's saying, listen, it could be worse. I know what you're dealing with is hard, but, but don't forget, we're in the middle of Babylon, and this is excruciating. Let's go back to verse one. I exhort the, fellow, the elders among you as a fellow elder. He looks at them. I'm not just some random guy, right? <clears throat> not somebody who thinks I can do your job better than you. I'm living what you're doing. The pressure I'm going through is incredible. And I think, based on you know, my experience, that I might have something positive to share with you. He says also that I'm a witness of the sufferings in, of Christ. I mean, Peter could look at them and say, I walked with Jesus. I saw Jesus spit on. I saw Jesus slandered. I saw Jesus mocked. I saw Jesus beat. I saw Jesus crucified. I saw his dead body. I saw the resurrected Jesus. I got to watch him ascend into heaven. Like, I've seen all of this. So maybe, just maybe, I don't know, sitting down with the guy for three years and being like personally tutored by him gives me some authority to speak to you guys. And then he says this, as well as a partaker in the glory that's to be revealed. In short, You know how you guys are all like going to go to heaven and you're looking forward to resurrected bodies, right? I'm going there too. We're brothers, okay? So we're in this together, and I have a couple things I want to say to you. Exhort the elders. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd them. Now this is not a random, arbitrary encouragement. These might be the most personal words to Peter himself. And the moment he says this, every elder worth his salt knows John 21. They didn't have verses and whatnot, but they knew the story. And they go right back to John 21. They go right back to what John wrote. And I'm going to read this to you, and I want you to just soak this in. And this is Peter, who had just denied Jesus. Jesus died, rose again, and now Jesus is reinstalling Peter as a leader in the church. And here's what he says. When they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. 
He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Bound up in this simple command that he gives his elders is Peter's entire life calling. But Jesus doesn't stop with this. Jesus goes on and he says in verse 18, truly, truly, Peter, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And John, just in case anybody misses it, he says this, This he said, Jesus, to show what kind of death he, Peter, was to glorify God. If you're going to shepherd my sheep, Peter, you will die. And then he says to him, follow me. What do you do? Yay, I want to be an elder, (laughs) right? Is that what you do? I mean, Jesus puts an ultimatum. If you will shepherd my sheep, you will die. What do you do? And the only answer is this. If Jesus calls you to do it, you do it. Despite the cost to your reputation, to your name, to your relationships, or whatever else. When Jesus calls you to something, you lean into it. Elders have four main shepherding responsibilities. Number one, leading. Number two, teaching. Number three, disciplining. Number four, care. All of them, except for the disciplining part, are mostly and usually a great delight. The disciplining part gets really hard and challenging. Obviously, nobody likes to discipline their kids. Nobody likes to discipline anybody, but that's part of the authority that comes with the offices. You have to do that sometimes. But by and large, what, 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 what Jesus is saying to Peter, if you're going to do this, there will be cost. So when Peter looks at these elders and he says, shepherd the flock of God among you, what's the clear implication It's going to be hard, and it's going to cost you. Now, here's what's interesting. Some of you, um, God has called you to be an elder one day in this church. Many of you, you're like, you're thinking, I wonder if I do, wonder if I could, and you hear that, and you're like, nope, I'm out. But there are some of you, and you hear the cost, and you are undeterred. You're undeterred. You're like, I'm ready. But that's what happens when there's a calling on to you to do this kind of thing. There's like this irrational, like, I'll walk into it despite the plausible pain. I mean, like if, if the church in America goes through some sort of crisis, existential crisis, it's going to be our job to lead and to care and to make sure that you guys get everything you need in the trauma and the drama of that time. And some of you are like, I'm in. Like some of you are like, that's a challenge. I'm all over that. I'm excited about that. And have at it. Let's talk. <laughs> There are three great pressure, shepherding pressures every elder will face eventually. I want you to know these. A, because Peter says them. But they're the same dumb pressures 2,000 years ago that they are today. It's like people are people are people, and God's people are God's people. You can throw in buildings and tech and everything else into it. But elders are elders, and people are people, and relationships and relationships, and leadership is leadership at the end of the day, right? So here's what he says. Here's the first, here's the first great shepherding pressure. Number one, the pressure to appease people. Here's what he says. Your job is to exercise oversight and leadership, right? Here's how you do it. Not under compulsion. So in the act of exercising oversight, in the act of leading, there is not supposed to be voices speaking into you, making you do things or pushing you to do things that you know Jesus doesn't want for the church. 
Now, there are a billion voices, and most of the voices, I'd say 99% of the voices are really good-intentioned, really good-intentioned. But there are a lot of good things that aren't what Jesus wants. Like, my daughter wants a ferret. Jesus doesn't want that for her. (laughs) Is she in the room? (laughs) She might be. (laughs) There's a lot of really great things, though. There are so many good ideas. And honestly, typically, what holds us back from doing a lot of the great ideas, it's just human resources and people. What I love about ideas is that our vision is often way bigger than the resources that we have. As it should be. Vision should always be out there. It makes us lean on the Lord and beg him to help us. But but there are so many things that are wonderful we just have to say no to. And our job is to make clear-headed decisions as a team for the good of the people, for the glory of Jesus Christ. Because one day we have to stand before him and give an account for everything that we have done. And that's real. I want you to know that. But the pressure to appease people to get our minds off of what Jesus thinks most and to make those we love and like, like there are some of you, I just really want you to like me. I do. I don't know why it's a broken part of me. And I'm like, why do I want to like bend the knee to your good thing just to make you happy? It's actually an impulse, which is why a plurality of elders is a wonderful thing because they shut down all of these weird impulses that I might have or I do what they might have. And so this is where the team of elders is a beautiful, wonderful gift. But the pressure to appease people is real and it is strong. And I had a delightful brother come up to me this uh, just a couple days ago and he said, hey, I'm really interesting. I'd love to see if we can push this kind of ministry forward. And his heart was so awesome. Uh, his basic heart was, I understand we can't say yes to everything, and I support whatever you guys think is right. Would you consider this? And I'm like, oh, that makes it so easy, because now there's no pressure to appease. The pressure is to go back to my brothers and elder team and say, what about this? Is this good? Is this right? Is this what Jesus wants? And now it's not identity. It's not personal, and that is one of the most joyful things to be able to do. I love the vision, but we can't accomplish everything. If we did, you guys would hate me. It would be like a terrible, terrible thing. Number two, the pressure to make money. He says in verse two, exercising oversight, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. By eagerly, he means just be excited to do this for the Lord. Now, here's what's interesting, and you have seen this globally. It doesn't matter if the church is in an impoverished area or a wealthy area. Somehow, someone always finds a way to make money off of churches. Don't you see that? like in weird, scandalous ways. And you're like, wow, I didn't even think there was that much money resident in that group of people, and you managed to pull that out of them. That was crazy. And so whatever it is, it doesn't matter. There seems to be, in any circumstance, opportunities for elders to exploit or to siphon the body of Christ for not just money. Shameful gain could be position, or it could be control. It could be recognition, authority. But I do think primarily, primarily Peter's talking about money here. And this is why a plurality of elders is great. This is why you want to make sure there's a checks and balances, that it's not just one person who controls the finances. I mean, there's, I mean, come tonight to our budget meeting. You can ask all of those questions, and I'm going to punt them all to Kerr for Hasselt, and he's going to answer all of them. It's going to be great. Uh, but you want to make sure that the elder team is mitigating even just the opportunity to siphon funds, because this is apparently, historically, over 2,000 years, a normal way that some men with ulterior motives said, I know if I become an elder, I have access to money and making decisions around money. And so one of our jobs as elders is to discern those ulterior motives as soon as humanly possible. And then even if they do, to make it almost actually impossible to even access the funds if that's what's going on. Number three, the pressure to use your authority to oppress people. Here's what Peter says, exercising oversight, 
not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. With spiritual authority comes the ability to oppress people. It's real. Um, I, when I was younger, in my uh, early mid-20s, I did not understand uh, what came with spiritual authority. So, for example, uh, I became a pastor, and I would sit down with somebody, and I would maybe rebuke them, but it would land so much harder than it would before. And I'm like, why, are, why is this landing so hard? And, and somebody had to sit down with me, and, said, and they said, Michael... Okay, I know that you're used to just kind of doing your thing, but like once you have spiritual authority, things land much more intensely than if you just did it as a friend. And I started to realize with a spiritual authority, things land harder, but there's also this ability to cause much spiritual harm. But there's also the ability to do much spiritual good and to build into people and to draw out God who God has made them. And so one of the challenges for elders is, listen, you might be having a bad day, week, month, or year. And that impulse in you to control people, to oppress them, to stifle them, to use them for your own good, it is real. And it goes back 2,000 years from the beginning when Jesus created and conjured up the idea of elders inside the local church. Watch out for that. And I tell you that because we want you to know what Peter, one of the first elders ever, having watched many, many, many elder boards over his multi-decade ministry career, I want you to know what Peter thinks of the main issues. And I'm here to tell you, those same issues that were there 2,000 years ago, I'm watching them all over the place. And we need to make sure, you need to make sure that those are things that we're protected from. He says in verse 4, when the chief shepherd appears, I was talking to the elders, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I want to talk to a couple different groups right now. Uh, I want to talk to, first of all, Um, our current elders. May you be encouraged. May you just be encouraged. Press on. Be faithful to Jesus. Give your loyalty to Jesus. Serve, shepherd the body for Jesus. And there's an unfading crown of glory that awaits your faithfulness. Teachers are judged more strictly, and I don't know exactly what the Bible means by this. I don't know if this is just what he gives to everybody, and then you get it too. But like, there's a heavy weight and responsibility, but the promise is reward. And if you're faithful, the Lord will reward you. I want to talk to past elders, because this isn't just for those who like die by being an elder, right? Because there are many, many men who are elders in this church that are actually in this room right now. And I, I want to look at you and just say, I am so thankful for your faithfulness your faithfulness to the word of God and to this church and that unfading crown of glory is waiting for you. The elder team that exists now stands on the shoulders of many, many, many men who have gone before us and the faithfulness of these men to preserve the church, the clarity and the doctrine and the focus and the vision to not stray from those things has been one of the most incredible gifts. This church would not be here had it not been for you. Those of you who are in this room and you have been elders in other churches, We are not in competition with other churches. And when I see a healthy, thriving church, I get pumped up. 
I'm actually so heartbroken over the city of Bartlett and what has happened. I'm praying that God would bring other churches to plant churches in our city so there can be a greater evangelical witness. But for you who have been faithful where you're at, I just want to say the unfading crown of glory waits for you. We should be thrilled when we see elders of any church leading with faithfulness and a healthy body where there is mutual affection and love between the leaders in the church. It is a great delight. It makes the heart of God so, so happy. But the pressure isn't just on the elders, is it, Phil Church? It's on you too. Peter knows that. The pressure on you is on you to acquiesce to the latest cultural trends and fads. The pressure is on you to go with the flow. The pressure is on you to give into your wants and desires over the word of God. The pressure on you is to compromise to keep peace. Shall I go on? Like in the heated environment of first century of the first century church, the pressure is just on everybody, and it's excruciating and it's hard. And he's going to give some warnings. Just as the elders under pressure, they have some tendencies to go to some sinful areas, right? Well, guess what? He's going to actually give some warnings to everybody else. And I want to revisit this point here: repeated and enduring pressure weakens our defenses over time, and then exposes our true character. Repeated and enduring pressure in local churches, it's inevitably going to result in two challenges for everybody. And here's, here's the first one. The first challenge is this, rebellion against good leaders. Rebellion against good leaders. He says in verse 5, likewise, you who are younger, and this could be in actual physical age or spiritual maturity, it could just be a general term referring to if you're not an elder, you're a younger, that's also a legitimate interpretation. He says this, be subject to the elders. Um, This is not a new concept that in the spirit of youthfulness, rebellion is how people often get their way, right? And you, you see this all over the culture. And in the culture, rebellion against leadership is applauded as admirable. Power structures, bad, revolt, take them down, etc. But Peter's saying, listen, I mean, this, this whole idea of what's happening now in America, it's nothing new. It's the same story told over and over and over again. There's something about youthfulness and immaturity, though, that when we take these principles and we apply them in the church, Jesus gets really, really upset about it. I want to take you to Hebrews um, chapter 13, verse 17. I'm going to read this and then share a little personal thought on it. Uh, the author of Hebrews is really not afraid to address this. Peter's not afraid to address this. Apparently, they're not insecure about their leadership. And so he says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? They're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And again, there are some of you who read that. And you're like, I'm out, never want to be an elder. Some of you are like, that's like a siren call. I feel led to that. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. Why is it no advantage to you? Because as the elders go, so goes the local church. Now, look at this first part here. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Now, can I tell you personally the pressure on me right now to have bypassed when Peter said this in 1 Peter 5 and to not put this on the screen is heavy. Can I tell you why? Because in me, I am afraid that you are going to think we are like them. Them meaning the long list of people who have let you down, hurt you, wounded you with 
sinful ulterior motives. Every elder is going to hurt you on accident eventually. You get close enough to any human being, right? There's going to be some level of disappointment and pain. That's not what I'm talking about. I am talking about the people who abused their authority and oppressed you, exploited you, took your money, took advantage of you, that. I'm afraid if we talk about this, and I put this on the screen, some of you will be like, oh, that's so heavy-handed. My job is not to appease or to be afraid of what you might think my intentions are. So I'm getting to First Peter, and I'm, having, I'm literally getting ready to teach, and I'm like, I wonder if I should just bypass that because some people aren't going to be able to receive that. And the Lord was like, why are you afraid of those people? Be afraid of me. Do you see how this even works, even in preaching? I'm telling you on a weekly basis, there are things where my heart is hesitant to feed you from the word of God because of these same sinful tendencies. But they're not new, they're old. And so I'm looking at this and I think to myself, what other spiritual authority is ashamed of, their, of the noble authority that God has granted them? Parents are never like, oh, I'm afraid to tell you kids not to obey because, you know, like, oh, I'm afraid what you're going to think of me. You know, no cop is like, I'm afraid to pull you over because I know like, there's a bad reputation about cops right now. And yet pastors are like, now here's the deal. Pastors do, do not want to lead. They should not, at least semi-noble pastors, do not want to lead out of authority. We would much rather lead out of love and use authority only if necessary. A great mentor of mine said, uh, authority is like a bar of soap. The more you use it, the less you have. Now here's the point. Don't use it unless you have to. Use it sparingly. Lead out of love. It's a much better place to lead out of. Like how many of you would, like, would love to just lead your children out of discipline all the time? Like no, not at all. Not at all. And the hope, the hope here that, that the author of Hebrews is getting to and the hope also that Peter is getting to is that you have noble elders who are trying their best, imperfect, absolutely trying their best. And you, imperfect, yes, but you're noble and you want to have a life-giving, good relationship between the two. This makes God incredibly happy. Now I can hear your questions already. Can we just take a minute? Can I just train you on a couple things? Because I know so many of your background and the questions that you're working through. Let me just help you for a moment. Here's a question. What about when my elders are leading poorly or with a heavy hand? Like, that's great, Michael. Obey your leaders if they're nice to you, you know? But what about when they actually do lead with a heavy hand? I want you to remember two things. Number one, elders are your brothers before they're your pastors. You hear me say this all the time, but I want to just put that in front of you. And here's why. Because if it's an interpersonal thing, you and them, it's not a church thing, it's just you and them. They're not disqualified, right? You go to them. Open up Matthew 18, read the process, read the protocol that Jesus gives, follow it meticulously, go to them. That process, that protocol is there for your protection. Number two, if it's a disqualifying matter, there's another scripture that speaks to this, and it's in 1 Timothy chapter 5. If there's a disqualifying matter, Open that up. Read it carefully a hundred times. Make sure you get every, everything right in it. Read commentaries on it and then follow the protocol. The protocol is there for your blessing. And, and just don't worry. I know also for some of you, the next question that you're asking, and we'll get there too. One of the challenges with elders is that if you don't have two witnesses, biblically they're prohibited from actually acting on it in probably the way you want them to. And so that's where witnesses becomes really important. Important documentation is actually also helpful, emails, text messages, et cetera. But like, they are required to have witnesses. And so if they look at you and say, I'm, I'm sorry, there's not much we can do with this because of the nature of it, uh, that doesn't mean they're, they're abdicating their responsibility. Satan will rile so many people up to make false accusations. Do you guys know this, right? 
The reason these protocols are in here is not just for your protection, but theirs and everybody else's. And so it is not uncommon that Satan is going to rouse somebody up to give false accusations. That should be expected. Accusations shouldn't wreck you. What should wreck you is when there's actual evidence and the elders don't do something about it. That should deeply concern you. Here's the second question. What if it's just a concern? What if it's not disqualifying, but what if I just have a concern and I feel like I need to address it? If it's about the team, the elder team, just a simple one-on-one, a healthy elder board should welcome, welcome, welcome your feedback and your concerns about the team. And you should be in a context where you have the ability to sit down with one or all of them and share, hey, say, hey, here are some of the concerns I have. And here's what I think you should receive out of the conversation if you have a concern about an elder team. You should, number one, get a listening ear. Number two, the other side of the story. I think this is really important because what most people assume is that there isn't another side of the story, but there is another side of the story. Hear it. Let them talk too. But number three, expectations moving forward. I think the most important one is that you're talking and there's an eagerness to listen to one another. What if I have a concern about a specific elder? I'm not sure it's disqualifying or not. And one of the things we've just said to people is our elders are always available to be a counselor to you if you need help. But what they're going to do is push you back to follow the biblical protocols because we, the moment we go outside of those, we again, we start to do harm in the body. Now here's one. Michael, what about when the biblical processes and protocols, they don't work? I follow them, but the elders aren't following them, and I'm getting shoved under there, pushed under the rug, right? My, my advice to you would be simple. Some of you have experienced this, and this has been incredibly painful for you. Get advice, not just from some random person who's hurt. Get advice from somebody who is knowledgeable of the biblical protocols. Matthew 18, 1 Timothy 5, there are others, the... Uh, interpersonal reconciliation, church discipline, accusation of an elder. The Bible actually has protocols for all of these things, right? Find somebody who is very, very knowledgeable of these protocols and get advice and make sure that person, when they give you advice, is pointing you back to the word of God and that you're following those. And if the elder board will not follow those protocols, I've just got easy advice for you. After you've gotten your advice and you've followed all the protocols and they're just belligerent, leave. Jesus will probably follow you shortly after, But notice I didn't just say, oh, I'm upset. They didn't do what I wanted. Follow meticulously the biblical protocols. Now, let's come back to 1 Peter 5.5. I'm going to show you why. He says this, clothe yourselves, all of you. This is elders. This is non-elders. This is everybody. Clothe yourselves. Put this on you. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Why? Because God opposes the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. Let me tell you who the proud are in this context. The proud are the ones who look at what God's word says, and then they do something different. When they think they know better than what God's word says to do. And this applies to the elders. This applies to the non-elders. This applies to everybody in the church. There is a level of hubris. If we look at God's word, we bypass its simple protocols, and then we do what we want to do. And here's what God says. When you do that, my hand is opposed to you. But when you follow the biblical protocols, I will give you grace upon grace. My presence will be with you. I will support you in this process. And that's what I want in these heated circumstances. Verse 6, he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. I, am, I just think Peter is so smart because the fact that he put this here, casting all anxieties on him, 
says that Peter isn't just speaking as a leader, but he's speaking as somebody who understands the pain and the hurt when you in a church are not in unity with your elders. The pressure, the anxiety, the stress, the angst that people feel when they're like, I don't know if I can support or submit to this group of elders. It actually has a spiritual toll on the body. And here's what he says. I, I know the toll that's coming. Follow the biblical protocols. This is where the Lord's grace shows up and he just supports and he helps. But I'm telling you, but also I know the pain of it and he cares for you and he loves you and the, the comforting peace and presence of God is found for the humble who open up the word of God and do what it says in those moments. Here's the second pressure. Increased susceptibility to spiritual warfare. Repeated and enduring pressure results in increased susceptibility to spiritual warfare. He says now, be sober-minded, think clearly. Think with the word of God in your hand, in your mind, guiding your decisions. Be watchful, look. Look out there, look in here, just be aware. Because your adversary, the devil, he prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Bill Church, you, you are most vulnerable to spiritual warfare when your physical world is crumbling. How are people devoured specifically? I want you to just listen. By your very own choices. Satan doesn't create new sin in you. He takes what is there and encourages you to give into it. See the difference? He's not like all of a sudden, oh, I have a spiritual, I have this new lust. I have this new problem. All he has to do is exploit what is already in you so that you do what is natural and already inside of you. And when there is pressure particularly in a church community when they're experiencing oppression and persecution, their nature is to turn on each other, okay? And when they turn on each other, they, Satan says, oh, this is easy. He's already bitter. He's already angry. He's already you fill in the blank. She's already a slanderer. I can just walk into this. All I have to do is say, Oh, let me feed the monster inside of you. And most people are like, oh, I'll eat that. The problem, at the end of the day, Satan is just going to exploit you and what's already there. This is why he's like, be watchful. Be watchful out there. Be watchful in here. I, I was with a friend this week, and I asked him, I said, if, if there was going to be like one sin that took you out, what would it be? Immediately had an answer. I loved it. I was like, yes, that is so good. He had an answer. Why? Because he understands the devil's schemes. It's not to inject something new. It is to exploit what is already there. If the devil were going to take you out, how exactly would he do it? Be aware, because when the pressure is on, that's where he's going to go. Verse 9, he says, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We're all going through this. Pressure. Your pressure might be a little different than our pressure, but pressure is pressure, and pressure exposes what's really in there. Stand firm. Resist him. And what he means by resist him is simply this. 
kill the sin in you because he's just trying to exploit it. Stand firm. And after this, now this is going to be striking. This is how he ends the book, guys. This is going to be, he's like, he's winding down. Like, yay, what an encouragement this is going to be. Here we go. After you've suffered a little while, oh, the suffering's going to be done? The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Here is what Peter tells them. The suffering will be done when you die. But don't worry, <laughs> because when you're all dead, because Rome and Nero's coming after you, right? As Jesus said, it's going to happen. When he comes after you, have no fear, because Jesus himself will restore you. He will resurrect you. He will confirm you. He will establish you. He will give you strength. And what he does in you will be unmovable. Jesus will absolutely crush Babylon and Nero. And then he goes to his concluding remarks. <laughs> but he's honest, isn't he? Like, this is the thing I love about Peter. Grammatically, he's all over the place. Like, I want to give Peter grammar lessons, okay? But this dude's heart for this people is off the chains. And he doesn't mince words. He, he just addresses what is real. He says the hardest things to them. He talks to people that, he talks to the leaders and he's like, stop all your shenanigans. Talk to the spiritually immature people. Stop your shenanigans. Here's what God wants from you. You're the people of God. Be who you are. This is hard enough. Don't turn on each other. Love one another. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Close with two so what's. Number one, elders, shepherd like Jesus. Church, body, submit like Jesus. Hopefully, the posture of both is not authority, but just love. And when that is the, the relationship between the two, there's so much protection that happens in the church. And when I say church body, submit like Jesus, can I just tell you something about myself? Uh, I am a man under authority to our elders. So I'm applying that to myself as well. Kirk Verhasselt is a man under authority to our elders. John Shales is a man under authority to our elders. John Rocky is a man under authority to our elders. Craig Jarvis is a man under authority to our elders. Just because you're the elder doesn't mean you have no authority. It means that the team is your authority. This is why we don't have one elder. We have a plurality of elders. You have one elder who is autonomous to himself. Oh my gosh, help me out. That's terrible, right? It's not the way it works. So when I write elders, shepherd like Jesus, I'm speaking to myself. And when I write church bodies, submit like Jesus, I'm speaking to myself. Just so you're aware of how this works. And when the body of Christ does this, this is a beautiful thing. And it gives Satan almost nowhere to exploit. Satan is like, we're going to find disunity. There, exploit. But when we do this together, he doesn't have a chance. Number two. Fight pressure with love. Here's what he says at the end. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Okay, so we don't greet with the kiss of love. Very cultural, okay? Um, some of you do kiss, and it's, it's epic, and I love it. Anyway, it's fine. Um, there are a handful of dudes, you know. Um, but their kiss is our hug. And the kiss for the first century church could be an act of betrayal, right? The kiss could be an act of affection, it could be an act of reconciliation, could it not? 
And what I would say for the modern church is their kiss is our hug. And I can imagine you have the betrayal kiss, like oh, just the grinds your soul. You've been hugged by somebody that you know has ulterior motives. And you're like, don't touch me. Anyone? A couple of nodding heads. A lot of women in the room are like, yes. <laughs> but there is something about brothers in unity. In this culture, they would give kisses. And in our culture, you see them and you give hugs. There's something about the affection amongst the people of God that's really, really, really special. I did a, a Men's First Tuesday a couple years ago on how affectionate the men of Village Church are. It's hilarious. I see more hugs here. You will see men touch each other with hugs and high fives and everything else more in a local church than you will anywhere else in the world, even more than a frat, right? And it's amazing just the, the physical affection that happens, and those are indicators. They're symptoms of a positive thing that the people of God love each other. The people of God love each other. And this is how he ends it all. Listen, church, first century Turkey, this is terrible and many of you are going to die. Do not turn on each other. Love each other. Don't turn on your leadership. Leadership, don't exploit the people. Love each other. And if you will do this, you will give the evil one no opportunity for attack. Do this. Do this. As we look at the book of First Peter, we're reminded of one, I think, really important theological fact. Sometimes the Lord allows, ordains, or permits suffering. And in the moment when you're watching it, does it make sense? Nope. But you look back and you're like, wow, he was up to something genius. And I'm telling you, when Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross for our sins, the disciples, even though they were told exactly what was going to happen, they sat and they wept and they did not understand it. But God is always up to something. And whenever, whenever the people of God suffer in 1 Peter, whenever he talks about it, he always points them back to the cross. And so what better way to end this to say, listen, God has not promised any of us that our life would be happy, healthy, and wealthy. Some of you got that, praise God. But he hasn't promised it to us. And if the Lord deems that he wants to take all of that away from any local church or the American church, what he's doing around the world right now, uh, he's been known to do that. And when the people ask questions, Peter would draw them back to the cross and say, I'm telling you that in the suffering, God is doing incredible things and bringing about redemption. And we look to the cross of Jesus Christ and we remember that Jesus willingly suffered. And through this suffering, even though it did not make sense at the time, we understand that God is up to something. He is redeeming people. There is no act of suffering in your life that has been wasted. And we draw our hearts and our minds back to the cross and we're reminded that God does not waste one ounce of suffering. So as we close the book of 1 Peter, I want to just look at you and say, have you personally trusted in Jesus Christ who suffered for you? Have you personally placed your faith in Jesus Christ, suffered for you, was raised from the dead as a cosmic, just megaphone call to the world that this is not some other random dead guy, but this is the son of God with power? Have you placed your faith in the crucified and risen Jesus Christ? I am not asking, are your parents or grandparents Christians? I am not asking... Do you go to church? I'm asking, have you personally placed your faith in Jesus Christ, yourself, you? Have you owned it? Have you confessed your sin and said, forgive me, save me, I trust in you? And if you've never done that, today is the greatest, best day to do it. I want to invite you to place your faith in Jesus. And we take communion. 
Some of you, you've never taken communion before because you're not a Christian. And, and here's what I want to challenge you. If today's the day where you're going to place your faith in Jesus Christ, these elements are going to come by. And I want to challenge you, if you want to place your faith in Jesus, to take these elements and to partake of them. Because the partaking of these elements is a declaration of your personal belief and conviction that Jesus is God and that he died on the cross for your sins and rose again from the dead. And you believe that. If you're here with us and you have never trusted in Christ and you're not ready to do it yet, when these elements come by you, my simple ask of you is would you just allow these elements to pass? Don't partake because if you don't believe that Jesus is your God and that he died on the cross for your sins, there's just no reason to partake. Nobody will look down on you or judge you. We just ask that you don't partake at all. What we're gonna do is we're gonna have just a time of silence. This is an opportunity for you to go before the Lord. Maybe in this sermon, there's been some things that you need to confess to him. Uh, maybe you're just filled with gratitude. I don't know what it is, but this is a time of silence just to go before the Lord and prepare our hearts to remember and to partake of these elements and remember what Jesus did for us. Let's have a time of silence together.